William, Archbishop of Tyre and Chancellor of the Kingdom of Jerusalem, was a clever man. A native of Syria, he delved into not only the Latin texts traditional to his culture, but the fabulous wealth of literature that had been preserved by the Muslim world his tiny Uchmer kingdom was surrounded by. In an era when it seemed his homeland was on the verge of being erased off the map, he pooled all this knowledge to craft a history. He sought not only to tell the story of his homeland, but to save it. It's said history is written by the victors, while some histories are written by those who seek victory. William crafted an enchanting narrative of an intrepid expedition in hopes that he could justify the existence of his kingdom to those who might be convinced to send aid. In doing so, he helped shape the way the history of the Uchmer would be told for centuries. The histories of the ancients tell, and the same is found in Eastern traditions, that in the time when Heraclius, the Roman Augustus, ruled the empire, Muhammad, Satan's firstborn, who falsely claimed to be a prophet of the Lord, had led astray the lands of the East, particularly Arabia strengthening his pestilent doctrine. When the emperor was informed that the Arabs, so aggrandizingly proud and presumptuous of their vast numbers, were invading the Roman frontiers and not hesitating to claim the cities thereof as their own, Seeing that his strength was not sufficient to encounter such numbers and to restrain their insolence, he preferred to retire to his own land in safety, rather than commit to a precarious war with unequal forces. Thus departed the emperor who had been charged with the protection of the citizens afflicted by war. The violence of the Arabs increased, such that in a short time, from Laodicea, in Syria, up to Egypt, they had occupied all the land. When the Arabs entered the land, they found it abandoned and immediately took advantage of the unexpected opportunity to bring it under their power. They visited the same fate upon Jerusalem, that city beloved of God, but they spared the few inhabitants who still remained there in order that these might serve them by paying heavy tribute. They allowed the conquered people to have their own bishop and to repair the church, which, it is said, had been abandoned, and to freely keep their Christian religion. Thus the holy city, beloved of God, 
as our sins demanded should happen, was under the rule of infidel enemies. The yoke of undue servitude and endless labor extended for 490 years. Though the conditions varied. As the situation changed frequently, the city even more frequently changed masters. And in line with their varying dispositions, the city saw often bright and often cloudy intervals. Much like the chronically ill, at times it was burdened with a great weight, and at times it could breathe. And yet it was never able to fully recover, as infidel princes and godless folk pressed down upon it with violent domination. At the same time, there was a persistent rivalry between the Egyptians and the Persians regarding a contentious dispute of rightful rule. Such that they even wished to have different names. Those who follow the Eastern superstition are called in their own tongue Sunni, while those who prefer the tradition of Egypt are called Shia, and they seem to be in better accord with our own faith. As the kingdom of Egypt grew stronger, it seized the provinces and countries as far as Antioch, and among others, the holy city also came under its power and was subject to the same laws. Under this rule, just as captives are sometimes conceded some indulgence, some measure of their anxieties were to be removed from the faithful. Until, however, as humanity's wickedness demands should happen, Hakim became caliph of that realm. The sins of this ruler so far exceeded those of his predecessors and successors alike that his insanity is well known to those who read tales of his madness. Here among many pernicious things he commanded was this order that the Church of the Lord's Resurrection be ripped to its foundations. It is said that the reason for this act was so that the Caliph might prove himself to the infidels. For he was taunted with the label of Christian, as he was born of a Christian mother. Finally, divine clemency came to the misery of those afflicted and brought forth no minor consolation to the desperate. For when that wicked prince was removed from human affairs, there ceased to be disturbance from that part. As his son, Zahir, came to reign, 
At the request of the Lord Romanus, Emperor of Constantinople, with whom the son renewed the treaty broken by his father and entered into an alliance of friendship, Zahir conceded to the faithful permission to rebuild their church. For so long as the reign of the Egyptians and Persians prevailed, under their empire, the faithful were usually in better conditions. But when the power of the Turks grew in strength, and their rule came to extend over the land of the Egyptians and Persians, matters grew worse again. The holy city came under their control. And during 38 years of Turkish occupation, the people of God endured far greater torments. So that they came to regard as light that which they had suffered under the Egyptian and Persian yoke. The Turks, or Turkmen, were originally northerners, thoroughly uncivilized, and they had no fixed settlements. In fact, they wandered about and roamed everywhere, pursuing suitable pastures. In unison, they decided to elect a king, Seljuk. Now this man was wholly handsome, of nobility, and illustrious in his tribe. He was of an advanced age, but of healthy vigor. And as to military matters, he had much experience. The whole of his body's condition proclaimed that he was a great, elegant prince. It happened then that within a few years, not only the land of Persia, but indeed also the whole of the eastern kingdoms had been subjugated. Subduing the power of Arabia and those other nations which held sovereignty by violence. And in this way, this worthless and abject people so suddenly rushed to such a height that they occupied the entire East. This happened barely 30 or 40 years before our Western princes undertook the pilgrimage this work is about. Reigning over the Greeks was Romanos, surnamed Diogenes. And with much prosperity, he administered the Constantinopolitan Empire. There emerged from the interior of the eastern frontier a most powerful satrap of Persia and Assyria. By the name of Alparslan. 
who brought with him an incredibly infinite multitude of nations, whose number, it was said, was so excessive that the whole surface of the globe was covered with them. He entered lands of the empire and subdued them. Meanwhile, the sword he was to fall on made itself known to the emperor. A great force. An army hostile to Christians laying waste the Christian empire. He marched against the foe, who already held innermost lands of the empire, and had already advanced far into the interior. With a strong hand, but destitute of divine favor, he met them in battle. The Christian army perished. The steel of the faithful was laid low. The blood redeemed by the blood of Christ was poured out by the impious. And worst of all, the emperor was captured. This infidel man, but still magnificent, commanded that the emperor be brought before him. In contempt of the name and faith of the Christians, sitting in his regal throne, he ordered the emperor placed beneath his feet as a footstool. The princes of the empire hearing of this placed another in command. Judging Romanos unworthy, far too undignified were the insults to his own body to wield the scepters and demonstrate Augustan dignity. What's more, he was deprived of his sight. These events, and others of a similar nature, brought the faithful folk inhabiting Jerusalem and its outskirts to the culminating point of misery, and into an abyss of despair did they plunge. For the empire, in its once prosperous constitution, as said before, didn't fail to frequently supply them with the imperial resources that could buy them much-needed solace. And the empire's safe and sound condition, as well as neighboring cities' happy success, that of Antioch above all, nurtured in them some hope of liberty at some future point. But now, it was death rather than life that they desired. And melting, they wasted away, sure of their perpetual servitude. Not only in the East were the faithful being oppressed by the impious, so too in the West, and in nearly all the circle of the earth, especially among those who were called faithful, Faith had failed, and fear of the Lord was cut by half. Justice had perished, and equality was subdued. Violence was dominating in people. Far and wide, fraud, deceit, and circumvention of the law wrapped themselves around everything. 
All virtue had departed and ceased to exist, as if useless. Evil had snuck in to take its place. Verily, the world seemed to be declining toward the eve, and the Son of Man's second coming was to be nearer and nearer. It was the year 1095 of the incarnation of the Lord in the fourth indiction. Lord Henry IV was reigning in his 43rd year as King of the Germans and 12th year as Emperor of the Romans. And the illustrious King of the Franks, Lord Philip I, son of Henry I, was ruling in France. Well informed, Lord Urban saw humanity's evil had exceeded all bounds, and that all things were going downwards, as if prone to evil. He had held a council of all Italy for much-needed correction of the wrongs of humanity at Piacenza. Forewarned of the emperor's indignation, fleeing out of Italy, he crossed the Alps and entered the kingdom of the Franks. Extremely anxious in view of the duty owed to his office as to how he might counteract the many monstrous vices and many ominous sins which were horribly sprouting forth and wrapping around the whole world. He determined to call a general council. Finally, at the city of Clermont, in Auvergne, divine grace serving them, from all parts of the provinces beyond the Alps in the month of November. Bishops and abbots convened in holy assemblage. In God's name also present were princes from these parts. Here, by the advice of the clergy and God-fearing men, Regulations were framed which might tend toward relieving the unsatisfactory condition of the church. Canons were also promulgated which might assist in the teaching of morals and the correction of enormous faults. Urban turned towards his exhortation. Hello and welcome to History of the Uchmer. Season 2, A Pilgrimage. Encore un livre sur les croisades. Again, a book on the Crusades.
So begins French historian Claude Gain's Orient et Occident au temps de croisade, East and West at the time of the Crusades, first published in 1983. And if it seemed there had already been enough ink wasted on them nearly four decades ago, well, the Crusades show no sign of losing their prominence in both academic circles and popular culture. In fact, I'm not even the first to quote Gain in an attempt to justify my own retread of thoroughly trampled ground. Yet here, at History of the Uchimer, we cannot avoid going where so many have gone before. It is impossible to separate the tale of the Uchimer states from the Crusades. But this impossibility is not entirely due to the events themselves. A good deal of it stems from historiographic tradition. Let me explain. There is nothing inherently crusader about the crusader states. Put another way, a Jerusalemite, like William of Tyre from our opening, was not necessarily speaking a crusader. In fact, the vast majority of the residents of all four so-called crusader states were not crusaders, leaving aside the fact that most weren't even Latin Christians, even those that were, well, many of them lived their lives without ever participating in a crusade. And any interactions they had with their neighbors, Muslim or otherwise, were colored by various motivations. Sure, there was conflict, but there were also treaties and there was trade. Most importantly, the relationship was multifaceted. When the Franks arrived in the Levant, they entered into the complex geopolitical web we spent all last season exploring. They even picked up a new nickname. They were known in Old French as Polain, meaning foal, as in baby horse. The word is usually rendered nowadays as modern French poulain or Latin poulanus. As opposed to native Frankish poulains, crusades and crusaders were foreign concepts imported to the Levant. They had come from Europe with a religiously motivated military goal. Whatever complicated cultural and political engines drove them, these existed outside the context of the Levant. While a crusader was acting within a foreign framework in a land they didn't know, Poulains, Levantine Franks, were Easterners. Even if they shared a common cultural background with Western European crusaders, their loyalties lay not with the success of a religiously motivated military campaign, but with the survival of their way of life which was a much more nuanced goal. In his book, The Invention of the Crusades, crusade historian Christopher Tierman says, quote, Repeated calls for assistance from the East received muted replies. One reason for this was the widespread suspicion of the Pulani, the inhabitants of Uchermer, who were in no formal sense crusaders at all. Westerners, reared on the increasingly embroidered legends of heroism from the First Crusade, often failed to grasp the policies and habits of those who lived permanently in the Levant. End quote. In fact, Uchmer rulers are often blamed for the failure of the Crusades. They were too focused on wealth or their own status instead of the pious objectives of the crusading army. But the Uchmer rulers weren't trying to win Crusades, though you might be forgiven for thinking that they were. See, the residents of the Frankish East knew they were in a bind surrounded as they were by hostile Muslim forces. But they also knew what our old friend, Alexios Komnenos, knew, that Western Europeans could be induced to support them militarily 
if they were given the right motivation. Let's talk about William of Tyre. Our opening today is pulled from the first part of his Historia Rerum Impartibus Transmarinis Gestarum, A History of Deeds Done Beyond the Sea. Beyond the Sea is, if you'll recall, the English rendering of the French term Outremer as well. This title could also be translated as A History of Things Done in the Outremer, and another title given to it is Historia Hierosolomitana, A History of Jerusalem. It's important to point out that we don't actually know what William himself called his work. Both of these titles come from copies of it. In this first part of his history, William recounts all the events that led up to the founding of his homeland, the Kingdom of Jerusalem. William is very well informed, though his medieval perspective is also clear. In the introduction to William of Tyre, historian of the Latin East, historians Peter W. Edbury and John Gordon Rowe set out the aim of their book in the following manner, quote, No medieval writer of history ever wrote without some axe to grind. So what were William's purposes in writing, and what was his message? End quote. We'll talk about some of those purposes mentioned a bit later on today. Still, despite his axe grinding, William's account is pretty good, good enough to provide us with a pretty solid previously on History of the Outremer for our second season. And if you're wondering why about half of this episode is just a quote from it, and why I took the time to recite the Latin, it's partly because it's so well written and engaging. He starts with explaining how the Levant fell into the hands of the Muslims, and even though he breaks it down using geographical terms, the Persians and the Egyptians, he also explains the Sunni-Shia split. Of course, as we discussed way back in episode 1.1, he highlights the reign of the Fatimid Caliph Imam al-Hakim as a particularly violent time in Jerusalem. And there is that explanation of his Christian mama. However, he does clarify that Al-Hakim was an outlier. And even though he's quick to point out that the Christians of the Holy Land were never truly free, things returned to normal under Az-Zahir, and well, life under quote-unquote the Egyptians and the Persians was more or less tolerable. And then the Turkmen came. It seems he's a bit confused as to Seljuk history in particular, though who can blame him? I'm here writing with internet access, and hell, even I'm confused. The Turkmen operated in an entirely different context, and they didn't write stuff down. It was evidently much easier for William to read written accounts from Fatimid Egypt than track down an oral Seljuk historian, if that even existed. Seljuk records were normally kept in Persian by their Persian administrators like Nizam al-Mulk, who referred to the Seljuks as Persian rulers because they were writing in a Persian context. So if William of Tyre focuses on the destruction wreaked by the Turkmen, that's likely because he's using the accounts of Armenians like Matthew of Edessa or Aristakis Lastiverzi, who were on the receiving end of the Seljuk conquest. His account might have turned out differently if he'd had a secret history of the Seljuks, detailing how their society worked and their motivations. He gets the basic points right, though, even if he uses somewhat odd names for Alparslan and Malik Shah, Belfeth and Solimanus, respectively. He doesn't really clarify their relationship to the Seljuks either. Belfeth, that is Alparslan, is an eastern satrap, an old Persian name for a ruler. And then, after covering the Battle of Manzikert, he just switches to talking about Solimanus, Malik Shah that is. 
According to William, it was the arrival of the Seljuks that put the Eastern Christians in true peril. This was paired with a generalized loss of faith everywhere, and this combination is what led Pope Urban to call the council at Claremont. William of Tyre's account for both the backdrop and the First Crusade itself wasn't really challenged until about a century ago. Drop a few of the more overtly medieval references to Christ and infidels, and it could even work as a modern pop history account of events. But of course, as is the case with all sources, Willie is not without his political motivations, and these distort the way he presents events. To quote from historian Christopher McEvitt's 2018 article, What Was Crusader About the Crusader States? When William, the Archbishop of Tyre and Chancellor of the Kingdom of Jerusalem, wrote his chronicles in the late 12th century, a word for crusade had not yet been created. But William knew what he was writing about. He was shaping the memory among Latin Christians in both the Levant and Western Europe of, quote, the brave men who went out from the kingdoms of the West, end quote. From the late 12th century to the mid-20th, this has been a fair description of scholarship on the Crusades as well. It focused largely on manly military deeds, and the field of operations was fixed on Jerusalem and the Levant, with brief forays to Constantinople, Egypt, and Tunis. But William was also writing a history of his homeland, the Kingdom of Jerusalem, and his account presented a beguiling model of history that intermingled the alternately glorious and disastrous narrative of the military campaigns to liberate and defend Jerusalem with the history of the kingdom itself. This fusion was not accidental, nor without consequences. William of Tyre sought to ensure that Western Europe would remain engaged in the defense of Jerusalem, and his chronicle was an extended plea for assistance in the face of the growing strength of Salah ad-Din. But William was also the author of a history of Islamic rule in the Levant, which he composed alongside his history of the kingdom as a parallel and a prelude. While this history is not survived, it suggests a dual perspective that has been lost in modern historiography. A sense that William saw his own history, he was born in Syria, as both a part of crusading, which began in Latin Europe, and also as a part of Near Eastern history, stretching back a millennium. End quote. Let's break down a few things here. First, that history of Islamic rule. William actually makes reference to his writing regarding Islamic history a few times in his surviving work. The time skip from the capture of Jerusalem by the 7th century Arab armies up to the 11th century is accompanied by a note that the intervening centuries are covered in his other work. Apparently, his main source for this work was Eutychius of Alexandria, who I briefly mentioned last time. He is the very same Melkite patriarch who Yahya of Antioch was taking over for one of the first Melkite Christian authors to write in Arabic. There is indeed a bit of a debate as to whether William could read Arabic. I won't get into that now, though. William will be a source for us going forward, but we'll have plenty of time to talk about his personal life in the future. Or lack thereof, actually. William lived at a very crucial time for the Uchermer states. As McEvitt points out, Jerusalem was in danger from the ascendancy of Salah ad-Din. Saladin. Saladin is some time off in the future for us, but what's important to note is that in 1187, Saladin will take the city of Jerusalem, providing the catalyst for the Third Crusade. But if that's nearly a century after the First Crusade, why are we talking about it now? 
In The Invention of the Crusades, which I've already quoted from, Christopher Tierman makes a case that it was the Third Crusade, and particularly the need to formalize the response to Saladin, which created the institution of crusading. This institution then retroactively included both the Second and First Crusades as exemplars. The First Crusade as an example of how to do it right, and the Second Crusade as an example of how to do it wrong. So, if the First Crusade wasn't a crusade... What was it then? Well, the answer is in the title of our second season, a pilgrimage. Both the words iter, journey, and peregrinatio, pilgrimage, are used to refer to the First Crusade. We heard it straight from the Poulain's mouth in the opening. William refers to his account as detailing a peregrinationis iter, literally, a pilgrimage's journey, or a journey of a pilgrimage. Many of the stereotypical elements that will become identified with crusaders and crusading imagery were shared by pilgrims. This tradition of taking the cross, often accompanied by sewing crosses onto clothing, originated as part of the pilgrim's experience. By the 12th century, taking the cross is referenced as marking out a particular type of pilgrim, though what exactly that type was is vague. In some cases, it seems to correlate with violent pilgrims, like those of the First Crusade. In other cases, it marks out pilgrims headed to Jerusalem. It's likely this tradition was interpreted in various ways by different people in different contexts. But during this lead-up to the Third Crusade, something changed, and taking the cross began to mark out a specific type of warrior pilgrim. We also start to see the specific and more widespread use of the term crucis signati, signed by the cross, and the old French verb croiser modern French, croisé, which will eventually lead to the term croisade and the Spanish cruzada, both of which will merge to give us English crusade. We will eventually have to discuss why this post-1187 evolution actually happened, but what's more important for us now is that backwards effect it had, reshaping perceptions of what the pilgrimage in the 1090s actually was. Our second season will focus on that pilgrimage, the event we know as the First Crusade. And despite all the deconstructing we've been doing, I don't mind using that term. Because if I wanted to be entirely unanachronistic, I wouldn't even be speaking modern English. When we discuss history, we often have to use terms that wouldn't make sense to those living at the time. That's just the nature of translating past events to fit our modern perspectives and modern language. But we need to keep two things about the quote-unquote First Crusade in mind. One, no one thought about this pilgrimage as a crusade at the time. That retrospective evolution would not take place for a century. And two, this is not a podcast about the Crusades. This is a podcast about the Outremer. The two things are connected, but the First Crusade as an exemplar of an institution that will become popular in Western European culture of the 13th century is not our jam. We are focused on a pilgrimage that led to the founding of four polities in the Levant. That's another reason why our first season barely talked about Europe at all. We kind of took the William of Tyre route and placed the history of the Uchimere states into its Middle Eastern context. As McEvitt points out, quote, The history of the Kingdom of Jerusalem and the other Frankish principalities of Syria are best understood within the history of the Middle East not as an extension of medieval Europe. 
the fusion of the subject of the Crusades and the subject of the quote-unquote Crusader states depends on a number of assumptions that are no longer tenable, the most important of which is that the Franks of Syria can be studied independently of the Middle Eastern context in which they lived. End quote. We won't be going quite so far as to just ignore the concept of crusading, though the iconoclast in me might like to just jump forward and cover the arrival of the Franks just like we did the Seljuks, in under one episode. But we won't be doing that. The First Crusade, and its sequels, are a vital part of our story. As is how those events were recorded, and passed down to following generations. Though William of Tyre's account is obviously biased, that bias is actually of interest to us. See, the events of the First Crusade and the consequences of these events will themselves shape the way the story is told. As an example, I want to draw attention to one aspect that came up repeatedly in the first part of William's work, and that is the role of the Byzantine Roman Empire. After his prologue, William's work starts just as I quoted in the opening, by recounting how the Roman Emperor Heraclius retreated from battle and left the Christians of the East to their fate. He echoes this later on when he mentions that after Alp Arslan's victory at Manzikert, the Christians of the East were subjected to misery and suicidal thoughts because the Roman Empire could no longer protect them. As it goes on, the work continues to develop themes of Greek weakness contrasted with Frankish strength. The message here is clear. Protection of Eastern Christianity was now in Frankish hands, because the Romans could no longer hack it. This is a point of view that developed during the Crusade, and it was shaped by how Alexios and his empire interacted with the First Crusaders. If the main aim of our first season was to understand the Levantine world that these pilgrims found, our second will turn its attention towards the pilgrims themselves. How did this pilgrimage turn into conquest? And what was the background that these new arrivals brought with them? Within the context of the Middle East, the Franks are most comparable to the Turkmen. New arrivals with religious ties to specific communities already present. However, with the Seljuks, as discussed last time, we don't have that clear a picture. Whereas with the Franks, well... It's nowhere near as detailed as settled literate societies like the Roman Empire or the Fatimid Caliphate, but we have a lot more documentation and research. And it's in Latin, so I get to practice and get some much-needed WD-40 on my rusty Latin skills. So, part of the second season will also deal with answering some fundamental questions about who these pilgrims were. What's a Latin Christian? What does the Pope have to do with all this? And how did the pacifist religion described in the Christian Bible come to advocate war and murder? As we follow this pilgrimage from Claremont to Jerusalem, we'll answer all these questions and more, starting with, what is a Frank? Frank?